0: So today is the last in uh, four sermons where we're looking at the whole of the book of Acts. We're not doing the whole of the book of Acts today. We've been working our way through it. And we've got to chapter 20 in Acts, if you'd like to open up to, to there, That's page, actually we're going to go from 21 to page 1118, Acts 21. And we've been seeing the story of the unstoppable word of God. Uh, This is the story of the early life of the church. And um, now we come, like I said, to our final section. Um, So let me pray and then we'll get into it. I mean, we're not gonna, normally, we start the sermon by reading what we're going to look at, because it's so many chapters. We're not going to read it all now, but as we go, we'll kind of tell the story, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you that you are our faithful and good God, that you go before us, and even when we wander, you are the one who's faithful to us. Thank you for the way we've been able to revel in your goodness, to sing together, to pray to you. You are good all the time, and so we thank you that that means that your word is good, because it is, it is like you in that way. It is truthful. It is good for us. And we believe now that it, it is good for us. So please speak to us and help us to be changed and transformed as you renew our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with what might be a slightly provocative question. Um, is Christianity political? Okay. Okay. And we have our UCCF politics coordinator. Is the gospel, the message of Christianity, is it political? Yes or no? What do you think? Politics is to do with the rule of people over the affairs of life. Okay? It's the rule over people over the affairs of life in a particular place. That's, the, that's politics. So is the gospel, Christianity, political? If the gospel isn't political... How do you explain the fact that the last kind of eight chapters of the book of Acts is basically the story of Paul almost constantly under arrest and giving account after account before every political authority and power there is? If the gospel isn't in some way political, why does it constantly attract the attention and sometimes the wrath of political rulers throughout history, whether it's religious political rulers here, uh, the Jewish high priests and councils, or or um, non-Jewish, Gentile, uh, Roman rulers and kings, why does it constantly attract their attention and wrath? Why can't Christianity just kind of be a good boy and slot in? It's because the gospel is political. It's not party political, Christianity um, doesn't equal the left or the right. There isn't one political vision that you can label Christian. That would be a mistake. The gospel actually operates on a, a much higher political level because the good news of Christianity is the announcement we saw at the beginning of Acts about the king. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and so he is Lord and Christ. Lord and God's appointed king, rescuer of the world. and acts in the beginning and the end is kind of topped and tailed with language about the kingdom of God. So now if politics is all about the rule of people over the affairs of life in a place, then think about it. The announcement that there is no higher rule than the rule of Jesus and that he reigns over the whole world, over every sphere of life, And everyone should give their allegiance to him. That is a highly political message. Now, this isn't anti-human politics. God actually created human political institutions, kings, governments, councils, and so on, to have their rightful place to sit under his authority. They're good. They're given by God. The problem is when human authorities tend to think too highly of themselves and think there's no higher authority than them. And so in the first century, the gospel bursts onto the scene saying, there is a higher authority and his name is Jesus. And the people who speak that message have always felt the opposition of whatever human authority feels threatened by the message of Jesus, the Lord. So what we're going to explore this afternoon in these final chapters of Acts is how on earth Christianity can survive. Without taking up arms and going to war with other authorities, because that is not Jesus's way. How did and how does the word continue to spread when it is so politically unacceptable? And the answer to that is courage. That's what we're going to see. Courage is the answer. And we're going to see courage in the life of Paul, who's basically the exclusive focus of the end of Acts. Peter, James, those guys, they just kind of disappear. We're looking at Paul for the rest of it. And in this story, Paul isn't sent anywhere on mission like we saw last last week. There are zero people becoming Christians. Not that successful. There's one miracle. No prison doors open. But it is the story of courage before kings. It's the story, actually, of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. Jerusalem, the center of Jewish religious life. To Rome, the Gentile political capital, the most important city in the world. And you might remember back to when Saul, who uh, his kind of Greek. Gentile name is Paul, became a Christian, Jesus said that this would happen to him, that he would proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. That's what Jesus said would happen to Paul. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen. He's going to testify before kings. So as we go, we're going to learn five things about Christian courage for us this afternoon. So here's the first thing we're going to see. Christian courage means knowing you're immortal. I'm going to start big. (laughs) Now, when we think of Paul, we mustn't think that Jesus picked Paul because he was a particularly courageous dude and wasn't going to need much help from God. So that's why he chose him. Now, I don't think Paul was a shrinking violet, okay? But the courage to appear before kings was supernatural, not natural to Paul. Have a look at Acts chapter 23, and verse 9. Just over the page. We'll we'll go back to 21 in a second, but this is where we get talk of courage. Acts 23, verse 9. So um, Paul's in Jerusalem, and it's not going well. There was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit and angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away um, from them by force and bring him into barracks. Okay, if you're Paul, you're terrified at this point. The following night, the Lord, that is Jesus, stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me here in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Take courage. You might have seen this building around with the the thing. I think courage was some mints or something. So they used to say, take courage. Take courage, Jesus says. Now, if Paul had had a a kind of natural, yeah, Jesus, I got this kind of character, why did he need Jesus, the Lord himself, to appear to him, stand by him in this most unusual way and say to him, take courage? Why did that need to happen if it was natural to him? Because Paul doesn't respond to Jesus saying, thanks for the vision and appearance thing, but I didn't really need it. I got this, Jesus. No, he needed an extraordinary visit from Jesus. And later on, he had an angel appear to him as well. He really needed help. Take courage, Paul. This isn't the end of the road for you. As you have testified in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. You will get to Rome, Paul. So Paul is to draw courage from the fact that he's not done until jesus says he's done this isn't the time for paul to die according to jesus though he almost got torn apart this is not his time so take courage so how can we take courage like this there's a missionary called henry martin who said this listen i am immortal until God's work for me to do is done, the Lord reigns. Let me say that again. I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. Paul, in a sense, was immortal. He couldn't be touched until he got to Rome, because that was Jesus' plan for him. You will get to Rome. And whatever Jesus has for us to do, there's a sense in which we're We're not going to die. We're immortal until the day it's done in his plan. Jesus decides when we're done on this earth and nobody else. And we don't know the plan in the way that Paul knew he was going to end up in Rome. So he was definitely going to make it out of Jerusalem. But we can still draw this same courage from the reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ. You're done when he says you're done. Now, that might be sooner or later than we think, but no one on this planet gets to dictate how our lives of witness about Jesus go. You and I are immortal until Jesus says our time is done. It's an extraordinary thought. So can you see how that would fuel and should fuel courage in the church? Can you see how Christians can stare any king or authority in the face and say, if this is my time, then it's my time. But you're not Lord of that. So I'm going to keep speaking, I'm going to keep living the Christian life, speaking up, speaking it up before any friend or enemy or power, because I'm immortal until the day Jesus says I'm done. Now that perspective doesn't come naturally, but Jesus comes to help us and says, take courage. We're immortal until the king says we're done. That's the first thing. Courage means knowing you're immortal. Next up, Courage means being ready. Now, before we get to Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, we get a really emotional build-up and setting to it. Paul, um, as we led up to this point, he is determined to go to Jerusalem. and And he knows, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, then I'm going to get to Rome. But all around him, he's being told exactly what's going to happen to him. So turn back to chapter 21 and verse 4. Notice um, we start getting the narrator talking about we. So Luke, who's writing this, was an eyewitness. He was there. He's like, we were doing this. It's really cool. 21 verse 4. We sought out the disciples um, in Cyprus and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So it seems that in the Spirit, they, they... understand what awaits him in Jerusalem, the, the suffering. And so they urge him, well, oh, don't go. That seems a little bit confusing why in the spirit they would urge him not to. But if you go on to the next bit in verse 10, um, we understand a little bit more of what that probably means. Verse 10. After we've been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. Imagine it. Tied his own hands. And feet with it, bound himself and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So the Spirit makes clear the suffering that's going to come. And then they say, well, Paul, surely this means don't go. It's so vivid, the the binding. This is what's going to happen to this man. You're going to be handed over. Don't go, Paul. It's like before you have an operation and you have to sign the piece of paper that lists all the things that could possibly go wrong in the operation, just for your information, Paul. This is what's coming up for you. Have a look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up <laughs> and said, the Lord's will be done. Now, Paul is not being disobedient. He, he previously had talked about how he's compelled by the Spirit to go to, to Jerusalem. But, but, but them saying, oh, don't go, don't go, it's like pounding on his heart. It's breaking his heart. It's like, guys, stop making this so hard for me. I know what awaits me, but I am ready. And eventually they agree. They give up, but they agree. <laughs> I'm ready. Did you see that? Says Paul. Not only to be bound, but to die if that's what was necessary. Now, as we look at Paul here, we mustn't confuse bravado with courage. Bravado. You might um, recall Peter saying to Jesus, when he says, I'm going to go and die, and Peter's like, yeah, I'm coming with you. I'm going to die as well. But then when it comes to it, he wasn't able to go through with it. He didn't really understand what he was signing himself up to. Bravado can be kind of like thoughtlessly, yeah, I'm up for stuff. It's hard. Yeah, I'm going. That's not this. Paul is completely aware of what's coming. It's been made very clear and he's completely sure of the path before him. It's interesting, in Luke, it talks about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, knowing he must die there. What's Paul doing? Setting his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that he might die there. But with courage, he is ready. Now, Paul doesn't have a death wish with a kind of delusion of going out with a blaze of glory for Jesus. And we know that he's not kind of kamikaze about it because later on, he's actually really strategic about getting himself out of death. He plays the card of being a Roman citizen and appealing to Caesar so that he gets a proper trial and doesn't necessarily get killed. So he's not just trying to get himself killed, which teaches us that courage isn't stupidity, seeking after suffering. But courage is ready to suffer when it's right. And for Paul, he must go to Jerusalem so that he can. You know why he wants to go to Jerusalem? To take a gift of money to the poor in the church there. I'm ready. Now, when we talk about courage as Christians, you might think, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not courageous. I could never have courage before people with power or authority. Some of you, though, think you're like the Idris Elba of kind of Christian courage. You're like, bring the fight. There's a fight. I'm there for Jesus. Both of those are not what we see here. This is heartbreaking, settled, communal, eyes wide open, readiness to do what is right for Christ and his kingdom, no matter what the cost. Are we ready to suffer for Christ? We were finishing up in Global Focus studying 2 Timothy, and um, someone shared that what a challenge then was to ask themselves, am I really prepared for opposition for being a Christian? Am I really ready? And we don't know what form that's going to take, but if asked to speak up and live for Jesus in a way that will cost us, are we ready? Well, Paul's ready. And so in verse 15, they go, After this, we started on our way up to suffering, up to Jerusalem. And then we get our third lesson about Christian courage. Courage means minimizing offense. Let's have a look at verse 17, what happens when they get there to Jerusalem then. Verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and uh, the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Um, so Paul goes to Jerusalem. Oh, I'll read the next verse about well. actually. Uh, when they heard this, they praised God. Okay, stop there. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, meets with the Jewish Christians, with James, and, and they, they praise God, what God has been doing through Paul. But then they come to the thing that's going to cause Paul trouble in Jerusalem. Let's keep reading in verse 20. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed in Jesus, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So there are thousands of people, uh, Jews in Jerusalem who have become Christians. And these Jewish Christians remain particularly passionate about the Old Testament law and customs. Okay. Now couple that with some people who have informed these law-passionate Jewish Christians that Paul is going around telling people to ditch the law of Moses and their customs. And you can see how this might go wrong for Paul in Jerusalem. Because in walks this man, Paul, who has not only been sharing the good news with non Jews, Gentiles, but it's reported tells Jews to rubbish the Old Testament laws and customs. And now, in the capital of Jewish law and customs, Jerusalem, at a time when people were uber sensitive about their Jewish identity, they could turn on Paul. Now, of course, this is a misunderstanding of Paul, it's not what he taught. Yes, the gospel doesn't require circumcision and Jewish customs and law, but Paul was very careful. He never told Jews who became Christians that they had to ditch the law and those customs. He saw it as a matter of freedom. See, people are feeding lies, stirring up trouble for him. So what do the church do? They hatch a plan to do whatever they can to minimize offense and avoid the misunderstanding that Paul is somehow anti-law or anti-Jewish. So let's see what their plan is to minimize offense in verse um, 22, uh, 23. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them about our decision that we saw last week, that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And if that's confusing, listen to last week's sermon. Okay? The plan is for Paul to join in some purification rites, shaving heads, washing, stuff like that, some Jewish customs, and then to go to the temple in a note-perfect Jewish way. Okay, just doing it perfectly, acceptably. How was it received? Just like Agabus said it would be. Let's keep reading. Uh, Down at verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place, the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian non-Jew, in the city when Paul with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops and the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul and they basically, the Romans arrest Paul really for his own protection. So there are stirrers in the crowd, they feed in the lie that Paul took a Gentile into the temple, which would have been highly offensive, but he didn't do anything of the sort. And, and, And they whip up the crowd saying, he's teaching against the law. So the Romans arrest him. But can you see how the church in Jerusalem, with their plan, were just really careful to try and minimize offense? Again, this is courage we're talking about, not brash bravado, Paul doesn't say, stuff you in your plan for doing purification rites. I'm free. I don't need to do any of that. I'm just going to speak about Jesus. No, he wants to make it as easy as possible to be able to meet people. Deliberately causing offense isn't courageous, it's just offensive. Christian courage will only ever let the message of the gospel itself be offensive, not us. There's a similar moment uh, later on, which is quite funny. Um, turn over to chapter 23. Where's well, not? It probably wasn't very nice for Paul. Over the page, chapter 23, verse 1. Uh, Paul's been hauled up before the Sanhedrin, who are kind of like the Jewish leaders. Uh, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, i fulfilled my duties to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself, via the law, by commanding that I be struck, he's saying, you shouldn't have hit me. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize it was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Wow. When told that the guy who just ordered to be smacked in the face is God's priest, pull backs right down. Isn't that amazing? He shows instant respect where it's due. Courage doesn't mean being an idiot and offending everyone on purpose. Courage shows respect where it's due. Courage minimizes offense. And I think this is a really important for le- lesson for us today. Let's think for a moment about social media. Some of us, I think, need more courage to be able to be public Christians and things like social media. But some of us can have an attitude of kind of being warriors for Jesus online, whether it's engaging in debates or posting provocative uh, links about Christianity. But I think it's really, really hard to minimize offense online. It's a pretty kind of ham-fisted tool for loving and careful engagement. There's no real social interaction, there's no facial expressions, there's no body language that says, I care about you online. There's just a link and some clickbait and a provocative photo, and that's it. And it may feel like we're being really courageous, but actually we're just being careless. Why not use the time you were spending online to meet face-to-face with a friend and actually just talk about Jesus that way? Much better. And we need to learn this as a church as we think about not just this church, but our public voice in Britain. I think we need to seriously step up our courageous speech in the public sphere, in media and things like that. But as we speak up publicly as Christians, let's minimize offense. Let's think about our tone. Let's think about maximizing our acts of love that accompany our speech in the world that's courageous. To go towards people who are different to us without compromising, that's courageous. It minimizes offense. Fourth, out of five, by the way, just so you know know where it's going. Courage means knowing who's king. Now, these days in this country, you're unlikely to get hauled up before royalty uh, because you're a Christian, unless you like being knighted or something, which would be nice. But the power lies elsewhere. And Christians are getting hauled up before kings today. Whether it's a Christian social worker student who stood trial before the courts um, because of his university kicking him off his course, or the Christian doctor who stood before the court of Piers Morgan on Good Morning uh, Britain the other day and was pretty well humiliated by Piers Morgan. It was pretty brutal. See, we still need courage before kings today. And the main event of these last few chapters in Acts is Paul giving three courageous defenses before political powers. He speaks before Governor Felix, Festus, and King Agrippa. And if they, those names remind you of the Adams family, then or maybe it's just me. Um, and I want to focus in on Paul's final defense before King Agrippa. It's incredible. And it's over in chapter 25. Before we get into it i want you to imagine the scene okay imagine a great stone audience room the galleries around the room full of people eager to see this man who they've heard about who's now going to face this local king and the halls echo with whispers as people anticipate paul's fate and then the hall falls silent the trumpets blare and the announcement is made, King Agrippa and Bernice. Have a look at 25 verse 23. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. So in they walk with great pomp. What a brilliant phrase. Their heads held high followed by this intimidating procession of the most decorated military men in the country, swords at their sides, and the men of influence of the city, and they take their seats. Verse 23, the command of Festus, Paul, was brought in. Bring in the prisoner, and in comes a solitary man hands in chains, his plain prisoner's clothes dull compared to the golden glint of Agrippa's crown. And Festus speaks. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer I found he had done nothing deserving of death. He didn't release him, anyway. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, Caesar, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write for I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges about him. This is like his third court appearance. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So here's Paul before a king, but he doesn't stand before any ordinary king. See, King Agrippa is from the family of the Herods, Might be familiar to you. Herod the Great, who slaughtered the baby boys in an attempt to kill King Jesus because he was jealous of his rivalry. His son beheaded John the Baptist for calling him to repentance. His grandson, Agrippa I, had James killed with the sword earlier on in Acts. And now we have his son, Agrippa II. And Paul stands before him in chains, before a Herod. How intimidated would you feel? So let's listen to Paul's reply. Verse 1. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, as in as a Jew. And from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they've known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So Paul calmly lays out once again, he's not against the Jews. He's a perfect Jew. And actually his hope is the Jewish hope in the Messiah. And then what he does is he tells his story of being obsessively persecuting Christians, of trying to kill them. Um, And then he tells of his encounter with Jesus, his commission by the Lord Jesus himself to speak the message of hope and the resurrected Messiah. And then he kind of says to Agrippa, what was I to do? Have a look at verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all in Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Here I am," he says. "I testify between small and great, children and kings. Jesus is the Messiah. That's that was the job I was given to do. It is my my mission from heaven. Festus butts in, verse twenty four. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. That's why you should never read books. Paul keeps his call. Verse 25, I'm not insane. Most excellent, Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. He says, I'm not mad. This is true and reasonable what I'm saying. And it was very public. King Agrippa knows this. He he must have heard about Jesus. And then Paul just dials up the courage to eleven. Look at verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Cool as a cucumber. Paul's gone from defending himself to gently asking the king what he believes. And Agrippa is on to him. Basically says, are you trying to convert me? Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? You think I can become, you think you can convince me, little man? Verse 29, Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening, to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Paul says, yeah. and He casts his eye around the gallery full of all the people and he makes eye contact with the officers and the powerful men and the king. Yes, I pray that you and everyone here will become a Christian but not a prisoner. Now that is courage before kings, isn't it? That wasn't easy for paul and one day he's going to appear before caesar in rome the king of the world so where does such courage come from where does he get his calm how does he not only carefully defend himself in a way his his hearers will actually understand but also have the capacity to even help agrippa consider his own beliefs and his standing before god how does he do that The secret to his courage actually comes in his speech. Look at verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. See, when you've encountered the king of heaven, and he's told you to do something, Then it doesn't matter what other kings stand before you. You do what the King of Kings says. You do what he says. That's where his courage comes from. So is your boss asking you to do something you can't do as a Christian? You have a higher king in heaven. Are your family or parents putting pressure on you because of your faith? Take courage, they're not the highest authority. Is the government pushing us to violate our conscience as Christians or to teach our children things that are against the word of God? Listen to this, and you're going to have to believe this over the coming decades. The state is not the king of kings. The risen Lord Jesus is. So take courage. How does a Pakistani Christian on trial for blasphemy, unjustly accused, stand trial and speak with courage like Paul by believing that there's a higher law than Sharia law, a greater authority than the prophet Muhammad, and that the king of kings, who empowers by the spirit, will give them courage and grace in their time of need. So brothers and sisters, we do everything we can to be law-abiding citizens, blameless members of our families and communities and of this nation. But when it comes down to it, Obedience to heaven is what matters. So take courage and speak. Now, all this talk of courage might simply be discouraging. Because it brings to mind moments where we lacked courage to speak up, moments where we lost our call, cool, where we were unnecessarily offensive, where we did actually value our own comfort over Christ's reputation. But did you hear the echoes? Did you hear the echoes of Jesus in the trial of Paul? Jesus was violently arrested, accused in Jerusalem of being against the Jewish religion, when in fact he himself was the fulfillment of their hopes. He was considered a threat to Roman rule, beaten, flogged, passed between the Sanhedrin and the high priest, Pilate, the Roman governor, and King Herod, not one of them finding a basis to actually charge him, and yet not releasing him, but crucifying him. And Jesus went through that to pay the price for courageless people like you and me, like Peter. He did that to pay the price for persecutors like Paul. And so there is grace and there is forgiveness for our failure to be courageous as we should be. His courage was unique. He stood trial in our place. And so there is help. Think about this. There is help for us from the spirit of the one who had courage before kings to be the savior of the world for us. The same spirit that gave Christ the courage to go through that is the spirit who's with us. His courage is unique, but Paul's courage was not unique. And it's precisely because Paul's courage is not unique that the word has spread. Christ has always given courage to his church when we've needed it. The, the, the unstoppable word wasn't stopped by Jewish powers or Gentile kings or Emperor Nero who is round the corner for these Christians. The word wasn't stopped by Russian gulags and it won't be stopped today by Chinese crackdowns on the church and on missionaries. And it won't be stopped by Western ideologies enforced by the soft power of personal and, pub, and popular opinion. Because Paul is just the first in a long line of Christians to have courage from Christ to speak up. We need to get to Rome, don't we? Finally. Whoop, missed it. Unleashing the word. Courage means unleashing the word. So off Paul goes to Rome, to the home of Caesar, the divine human ruler of the greatest empire on the planet. And Paul's journey there, we're going to skip over it, but it's like Robinson Crusoe. It's really cool. It's got shipwrecks and snake bites and stuff, and it's really fun, and angels. Anyway, we get to the end, um, Acts 28, verse 30. Here's Paul. He's in Rome, and he's under house arrest. So not in prison, but he is under arrest in his house. But he's able to do ministry. Read this with me, verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. As we finish Acts, the unstoppable word has gone on quite a journey, hasn't it? Just as Jesus said from Judea, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and now it's in the capital of the ends of the earth. The church has faced persecution, stonings, false teachings, mobs, sorcerers, prisons, shipwrecks, punches in the face, flesh ripped out of backs, trumped up charges in bloodthirsty courts, governors and kings. But what are the last words of Acts? With all boldness and without hindrance. Because that's the story of spirit-given courage that unleashes the word into the world. That's how it finishes. It's not easy, but they're bold and free to speak. And I find that last sentence so tantalizing. It's like an open ending that we get to be a part of. Think about it. At the end of Acts, has the word spread to the ends of the earth? Yes, it's in the capital of the ends of the earth, Rome. But no, not to everywhere, not to everyone, not yet. And so the story of the spread of the unstoppable word through courageous, ordinary, spirit-filled Christians, that story carries on. That's our story. That's why we planted the Globe Church. We get to be a part of this. So whatever powers, whatever authorities, whatever kings we find ourselves up against, take courage, speak without hindrance, because Jesus is the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you raised up your son from the dead and seated him on the throne, and not for one moment have you ever abandoned your church. We think back through 2,000 years' worth of church life and history, and every opposition imaginable has been thrown at your word. So many regimes and powers and individuals have tried to extinguish Christianity, and they've failed, because Jesus is the King. And so, Lord, as we look ahead to the next season of life as a church, but as to, to the future in this nation and in the world, and for our, our persecuted brothers and sisters, thank you that we can have confidence that your word will continue to be unstoppable, the church will never be extinguished, and the gospel will advance. And I pray for each of us to have courage, to take courage when that is so unnatural to us, that your spirit would give us courage to speak up before kings, knowing that we're immortal, knowing that there is a higher king that we answer to. We need your help, we need your grace, and we thank you that you are the God who loves to give this courage. In Jesus' name, amen.